0: Welcome to Real Faith for Real Life. Hey, everybody, it's the podcast all about how faith impacts every area of our lives. Hey, I'm Pastor Bill, and I am so excited for this current series we're in the middle of. It's all about uh, our roots in the Christian faith, what the core of the Christian faith is all about, what the Bible is all about, and what life is all about. In short, it's the gospel, the good news. And we're getting into the heart of the good news today, diving into the details of it. Um, So we're going to start, as we have been doing in this series, with a teaching segment. Today's teaching segment is a little bit longer than some, because there's a lot to talk about with a very important and nuanced topic, sin. After that teaching video, I'm excited to have a special guest on today's podcast, to discuss how it applies to our lives. So make sure you stick around to the end and uh, I'm excited for this episode, I hope you are too. Let's get into it. Welcome to part three of our series, I Believe. We've been studying what we believe as helpfully summarized in the creeds and confessions these great documents that have stood the test of time throughout church history. And in particular, in this study, we're talking about the Heidelberg Catechism, a great tool to help us read and understand the Bible better. So, in part two, by way of quick review, we, de- we determined that the theme of the Heidelberg Catechism is this great word, comfort. And we said that means strength for living. And we said in order to enjoy that comfort, we have to know three Three things, sin, salvation, and service. We just have to know how great our sin and misery are and how God delivered us from that sin and misery and then how we are to live our lives in gratitude to God for that deliverance. Sin, salvation, and service. We have to know the gospel in order to enjoy comfort and find strength for living. Well, these three words also provide the structure of the catechism moving forward the rest of our study is all around these three words. And right now, we're going to dive into the first broad section of the Catechism, and that is sin and misery. So let's begin right now to think about that just a little bit. In fact, I think if you just think about the life that we live on planet Earth today, it's easy to see that life is characterized by sin and misery. Maybe you're watching the evening news, or maybe you're scrolling through your Facebook feed, but It's not hard to find all the ways that this world is not what it should be. One of the books I was reading in preparation for this study put it this way. A person stands on top of a water tower, ready to jump to her death. A child sobs because students in her school are unmercifully teasing her all day about the way she looks. A high schooler cuts her arms desperately, trying to feel anything A college student starves herself to try to have control over one thing in her chaotic life. A lonely businessman spends Christmas Eve alone. A mother sinks into depression as she struggles against her abusive husband. A tiny nation becomes a battleground for one war after another. These are just a few examples. I think you would agree with me that in the present day, and indeed all throughout human history, things are not the way They should be. And further, I think we all have this intuitive sense that not only is the world in general not the way it's supposed to be, but if I'm honest, my life is not the way it's supposed to be either. And so we're going to talk about that in this study. We're going to talk about sin. Well, the German word for misery that was used here in the Heidelberg Catechism originally is an interesting word, and it means exile. Now the theological reason we are in exile is this. Our sin has separated us from God. And you read that in the earliest pages of scriptures how the first humans they decided to rebel, they decided to say no to what God wanted and commanded. And so they were banished from his presence. They were banished from the garden and all of the rest of their lives was lived in exile. And all of our lives since then in human history have been lived in exile from God. Now I think that's the appropriate picture and tone to have in your mind as we talk about this section on sin, misery, exile, separation from God, homesickness, longing for things as they should be. And really, all of the things we've been talking about, all these symptoms of misery in life, they all are because we're living life in exile. So let's talk about that. And as we dive in, I want to address this question. Why study misery first? Why start here? Of all the things to talk about, this has got to be the least pleasant, the least exciting. Let's talk about our sin for a while. Well, there's a simple reason, and that is this. Uh, That is our experience. All of our uh, experience as humans on planet Earth, it starts with the fact that we are sinners and it moves chronologically through the fact that we are saved by God and then chronologically into the next thing that we are to serve him gratefully with everything that we've got. So, chronologically, it makes sense to start with sin and misery. But there's another logical reason as well that's super important. And that is this. You cannot cure a problem that you've not first diagnosed properly. So if you go to the doctor and you need help with something, before they just start throwing random medications at it, they do some diagnostic tests to make sure they're treating the correct thing. Same thing with our problem, our greatest problem as human beings. We have to diagnose the problem first in order to treat that problem, to seek after the proper cure. And so that's what this is all about, diagnosing the cause of our misery, and that is sin. So let's dive right in with this question and answer, Q&A 3, which is all about knowing our misery. How do you come to know your misery? And the answer, the law of God tells me. At first this answer seems a little counterintuitive, right? Like you have to be told that you're miserable. Most times that's not the case. If I stub my toe, I'm miserable. I don't need to be told that. If I have the flu, I'm miserable, I don't need to be told that I'm miserable. I don't need to come to know my misery. However, let's think about that more deeply for a second. I think there's a distinction between feeling miserable, a miserable feeling, and performing miserably, miserable performance. Uh, Most of the time these are linked together. So if I perform miserably on a test at school and I get a D or a C minus, I also feel miserable. If I perform poorly and miserably on the tennis court, then I also feel miserable. But these are not always linked so tightly. It is possible to be ignorant of how miserably you're performing. And so that's why it's important to make this distinction. In the Catechism and in the Bible, I think it's saying that, listen, objectively speaking, human beings have performed horribly with regard to the law of God. We have failed. And whether or not you feel and sense that failure, you have performed miserably in an objective sense. So, where is that found in Scripture? A few places. In Romans 3.20, Paul says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin." Paul says we become aware of how sinful we are because of the law. And then in Romans 7, he says something very similar, talking about his own experience. He says, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And so what Paul is getting at here in Romans 3 and Romans 7 is that one of the roles the law plays in our lives is showing us our sinfulness. Theologians call this the use of the law uh, as a mirror. In other words, we can think of the law serving a few purposes. One of them is like, it's almost like it's a mirror. So imagine that you are about to go out into the world and to church or to your job or to school or wherever, and you think you're well put together. You think everything's tucked in. You think every hair is in place, but you haven't looked at a mirror yet, and no one's charitable enough to tell you that you've got something wrong. You're just not aware of that. Well, you need to look in the mirror before you go out into the world. That's the bottom line, so you can see what you look like. And and Paul is here saying the the law is kind of like that mirror. It's like a perfect mirror. And when you look into it, you can see that you're falling short of what God has asked of you. The law is like a mirror. So what is this law? Great question. Q&A 4 addresses that. Question, what does God's law require of us? Answer, Christ teaches us this in the summary in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So Jesus, when asked what the greatest law is, and there were 10 commandments and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rules in the Old Testament at that time, here's what he said. It all comes down to loving God and loving people. That was his summary of the law. And he's drawing that right from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. So at the root of God's will for us, what he's commanding us as his creatures, it's all about love. It's about loving God first, putting him in first place in our lives. And it's all about loving other people, serving them selflessly. And if you think about it, doesn't that make sense? I mean, think about all the misery we talked about just a few seconds ago. And how they wouldn't exist if we really loved each other well. Would people be bullied if we loved well? Would teens be cutting themselves? Would people be considering suicide? Would people groups be oppressed and repressed? No, love is the key to fulfilling all of God's will for us, all of the law for us. So the next logical question is this, can you live up to all of this perfectly? The answer, no. I have a natural tendency to hate God And my neighbor? That's a surprising answer. Most of us uh, wouldn't use a word like that. We'd say, yeah, I fall short. I don't love perfectly 100% of the time. But the Catechism says this you actually have a tendency, not just that, but to actually hate God and to hate your neighbor. In other words, you've come out of the womb despising God and running away from Him and disobeying Him and not caring about the people that He's created. Now, listen, if you're brave enough to make that confession, which is true, you're not alone. Even the writers of Scripture have said it themselves. This is John's testimony, 1 John. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. And this is easy to see when you think that Sin is not just commission, it's also omission. So sin is committing a transgression. It's stepping over a line. God has said, do not do this. Here's a boundary, and we step over that. We do it all the time in the way we think, in the words we speak, in the actions, the things we do. But sin is more than that. It's also omission. It's falling short. It's missing the mark. It's not doing the things God has asked us to do, to love well and perfectly 100% of the time. We fall short All the time. In Romans 3.23, Paul said, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Genesis 6.5, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And that, listen to this, every inclination, the the way your thoughts are angled, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart, uh, they're only evil all the time. That's the extent of sin. God says. Titus 3.3 At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That's the description of life lived in sin. If we're born with this natural tendency to hate instead of love, the next question is obvious. Did God create people so wicked and perverse? Did he create us this way? Answer, no, God created them good and in his own image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so they might truly know God their creator, love him with all their heart, and live with God in eternal happiness to praise and glorify him. So this Q&A gets at a really important theological guardrail, and that is when we talk about sin, we have to be very careful not to say that God is the author of sin, because He is not. Look at the scriptures. 1 John 1. This is the message we've heard from Him and declare to you God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all, and He created perfectly as well. Genesis 1 26 through 27. God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and the wild animals, and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So the picture the Bible gives us is that this perfect God created us perfectly. You know, we were not created wicked and with sin, but we were created in the image of God. God. Which means some, a few things. It means first we were to reflect the virtues of our maker to the world that he created. We were to be his image bearers. Uh, you might say that like a son is a spitting image of his father. You might look at my face and see a little something of my dad in me. And it was to be the same with God. We were to reflect our father. And also that we were to govern on his behalf. Psalm 8 puts it poetically, You've made them, you've made humans that is, a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas." Isn't that beautiful? The, the Bible's story is that a good God created a good world and good people and gave them a really important task. So that is our origin story, spotless origin, created good by God. So the question remains if, if this sinfulness doesn't come from God, where does it come from? Well, the next question and answer addresses that. Uh, then where does this corrupt human nature come from? Answer the fall and the disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. This fall has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in a sinful condition. So we're, we're beginning to get into some really important doctrines now, but some really difficult doctrines as well, to say that we are all conceived and born, not as blank slates, but in a sinful condition. That's really difficult for us to accept. We don't want to You know, think I'm just a mindless member of the herd of humanity, but I have some agency, I have some choices here. Well, listen, before we get into what the Bible teaches about this, I just want you to use a little bit of common sense and observational powers here. Think about the course of human history and ask yourself the question, why is it that other than Jesus, every person who's ever been born has ended up sinning? And sinning big, by the way. I mean, the story of the world is the story of people doing horrible, evil things to each other throughout all the different centuries, throughout all the different cultures. And maybe even pause autobiographically to think about yourself. I think about me, even from my earliest memories, my life being characterized by sinfulness and selfishness, right? And so all of us throughout life, we have to be told by teachers to do the right thing. We have to be told by policemen to do the right thing. The law has to be in place because otherwise we're going to be sinful. That's just the bottom line. Just common sense and observation tells you humanity has a problem that 100% of us, other than Jesus, have experienced. It's, It's almost like we've been born into or conceived into that problem. It's like we've had that right out of the womb. So what does the Bible say? Well, Genesis 3 talks about how sin entered the world. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And you know the rest of the story. The humans believed the serpent more than they believed God. They rebelled against what God had said, and they faced the punishment for that. Theologians call this the fall. This is the event through which sin entered the world. And listen... The Bible is clear that the fall did not just affect Adam and Eve, the first humans, but it affected all of us who have come from them. Look at how Paul says it in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people, consequently just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, So also one righteous act resulted in the justification in life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, many will be made righteous. So Paul is saying clearly here several times that Adam was a representative of humanity. And when he sinned, he thrust the entire human race into war with God, a war that you and I, have been born into the psalms put it like this surely i was sinful at birth sinful from the time my mother conceived me even in the the beautiful poetry of the bible you've got the psalmist confessing that he started life sinful sinful from birth it's something theologians call original sin but maybe a better more clear term would be this inherited pollution In other words, we are all starting life with a heart and everything springs from the heart, all of our words, all of our actions, all of our thoughts. We are starting with a heart that is polluted. It's almost like this image of a well. And it's almost like we as human beings, we are drawing water from a polluted well. So which came first? Is it that we sin and therefore we became sinful and sinners? Or is it that we were born as sinners, we were born sinfully, and because of that polluted well, that's why we sin? I think the Bible's message is that we were born with this polluted well, we were born sinners, and that's why we sin. That's original sin. We don't start as clean slates. But all of us are born with this tendency to hate God and hate our neighbors. Now the final question for today, Q&A 8 says this, But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? The Answer, yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. So how bad is this problem that we're all born with? Are we really totally unable to do any good? Are we inclined all toward evil? Well, The Bible's answer is yes, actually, that is the case. And theologians use this word to describe that situation total depravity. Again, I'd recommend slightly different wording to help you understand it. Radical corruption might be an easier way to wrap your mind around the Bible's teaching. Uh, This means that we are corrupt at our core, that the core of who we are is not pure but is corrupt. And in fact, Some people I've read put it this way, if sin were the color blue, everything about you is some shade of blue. There is no part of you that is untouched by sin, including your mind, including your emotions, including your will, including your ability to even choose God himself over the other alternatives, to make a a step toward God. All of that is tainted by sin, radical corruption, total depravity. Look at Matthew 15. It it says all of these evil things, they are not external to us, but they are actually flowing out of us. They are flowing from the corruption that is inside of us. Jesus said, but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from where? From the heart. And these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Jesus is like, you are concerned with all of these external things that, you know, really don't matter as much as the fact that in inside your heart is the problem. And all of these external things are flowing from this heart that is desperately wicked and beyond cure. Look, that's what Jeremiah says, right? The prophet in the Old Testament says the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? That's so different than the world tells us, right? The world's message is follow your heart, trust your heart, trust your feelings. The heart is basically good. And the Bible warns us, listen, the way you're born, do not trust your heart. It is sinful. You are sinful at your core. Total depravity here. And then a final verse for today's session, Ephesians 2, 1 and 3. Again, this fundamental verse to helping us understand our sinfulness. As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins by nature, deserving of wrath. And that takes us to where we'll pick up next week that sin is not a small issue. It's not a tangential issue, but in fact, God, because he's holy and just has to punish sin. We'll pick up there next week as we continue our study. Thanks for being with us. So the teaching today was all about sin. Difficult topic, but a really important topic uh, to consider as we begin to talk about the Bible's main message and the gospel. So, joining me now uh, for a little discussion to close the podcast, uh, I have a special guest. Pastor Eric is sick this week, and so we want to welcome Pastor Philip Stell. He is our Congregational Care Pastor here at my church. And man, Pastor Phil, you have a great voice for podcasting.
1: Yeah, great face for radio this <laughs>
0: That's a great way to start. <laughs> So, Phil, to guide our discussion, we're going to use questions, discussion questions that we've written and given to our small groups here at the church who are going through this study with us. And we want to use these discussion questions so everybody listening to the podcast can also benefit from them and even use them for discussion. So, I'm going to ask each question, we're going to pause for a brief moment and, uh, and then talk, but during that pause, hey, if you want to hit pause on your podcast player and discuss these questions with the people in the car with you or in your living room, that would be great. All right, let's get right into question number one. Why is it important to diagnose humanity's problem correctly? Do you think that most people know the trouble that they're in? And so now we'll just pause for a moment, discuss if you'd like, and then we'll chime in in just a few moments.
1: Well, my experience is that the answer to that is no. Most people seem to think, no, we're pretty good. And um, yeah, God's pretty happy with us and we'll all make it. Yeah, that's
0: why I think it's so important to start with a thorough examination of this topic. Because if you don't realize you have a problem with God or God has a problem with you, the rest of what we're going to talk about makes no sense and you have no reason to listen, pay attention, or, you know, come to faith in Christ. Why would you come to faith in Christ if you don't have a problem that needs to be solved? Exactly. Next question, the German word for uh, misery, originally used in the catechism, refers to being in exile. It connotes concepts like estrangement, loneliness, and homesickness. What does this add to your understanding of
1: sin and its effects? I think it adds a lot, Bill, when you put this in front of us and uh, extended, expanded the, the notion of misery and both the estrangement with other people, the loneliness, we're all by ourselves, homesickness, we wish that we were elsewhere. And all of those things realize that uh, we are uh, miserable.
0: Yeah, I think that in our culture today, people may not. As you mentioned, to answer question one, people may not mention or realize the trouble they're in with God legally, but they may still feel this sense of homesickness and loneliness and estrangement from the life that they sense that they were created to live. And so in that sense, in today's day and age, in this culture, speaking with people about misery may be even a better connection point than speaking with them about uh, sin in a legal sense, although it's very true. Question three, what role does the law play? Making us right with God or making it clear that we're not right with God? How does this affect your view of the scriptures?
1: Well, (laughs) when we read the law, then we're reminded, oh, and we think, oh, whoops, I think I missed a beat there. And if we don't have that put in front of us, then we think, no, we're doing fairly well. Yeah, yeah. Theologians would say that the law has three uses in the lives
0: of Christians, and we'll see all three uses as we proceed through our study here. Um, For extra credit for people listening who want the free seminary education, this is the second use of the law, and it's a tutor to Christ. Uh, For the unbeliever, the law serves as a teacher of how sinful we really are and how much we need to be saved. So that's one of the uses of the law. All right, so question number four. The Catechism says the law reveals our need for a Savior, but instead of immediately listing the Ten Commandments, it instead uses Jesus' summary of the law, love. Why do you think it was written that way?
1: Well, I think that's the... Some of the genius of the catechism because if we put the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, for a number of them, then we can kind of check that off. I haven't made any graven images like you were saying on Sunday. I haven't this, that, and the other. But when it talks about love and saying we need to love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves, we think, uh, I'm not so sure I can check that box, and then it makes us realize the depth of our, of our problem and the, the extent of what God is looking for from us. Yeah. So it's
0: effective
1: to go to love first. It's
0: also good, I think, because uh, that would make the first part of the catechism really long <laughs> <laughs> and really depressing if you throw the Ten Commandments and the explanation of each commandment up front. It would take you a long time before you get to salvation, and maybe the authors of the catechism said, we don't want to, uh, don't want to do that. We don't want people to despair <laughs> for so much time right up front. So, I think very wise that they've done that on multiple accounts. All right, question five. When a person is born, do you think they're a blank slate? Are they inclined toward good, evil, or neither? Is it hard to accept the catechism's teaching that we have a natural tendency to hate God and people
1: well, I think if when we first hear it, then we recoil. And we say, "No, I'm not that way." And yet, when we look around the world and when we have different experiences and maybe especially of people that we thought were really kind and nice, and then we see them doing something mean and and then I think then we think, "Oh, wait a minute, I think there's more at work here." Yeah sin is more than something that we
0: just occasionally do accidentally but it's clear if you look at the course of human history it is a power at work in every single person many people listening were uh raised in uh, you know homes with abusive parents for instance Um, Many people were bullied in school or taken advantage of at work. The list goes on and on and on. Like I said in my sermon, this may be the one doctrine that can be proven just by reading the newspaper and nothing else. People are not a blank slate, and they are not born good, but people are born with a tendency to hate God and hate other people. So question six, the obvious next question is, if people are born sinful— doesn't that make God unjust and unfair?
1: Well, if, uh, if this is where we understand things start, but when we go to the Bible, we uh, hear and understand very clearly that God made us perfect. He also gave us the freedom, and uh, we abuse that, and this is the result with its consequences. So it doesn't reflect on God, it reflects on, on us Yeah, and we mentioned that very clearly in the teaching part of the podcast.
0: God created us good. The first humans chose to rebel, chose to go their own way. And uh, now we are all born with this predisposal, this inclination toward sin. And so a kind of related question then, if if we are born with this predilection to certain types of sin, and if those things we're born in, it feels very natural to us to do them—
1: doesn't that mean those things are right? I think I hear that argument uh, used a lot these days. God doesn't make junk, and this is how I feel, and this is what I do, so therefore it must be right. And that is uh, um, an aberration of what the Bible teaches. It says, no, we have been born. Born with a sinful nature and therefore our inclinations go the wrong way. That doesn't make it right.
0: Yeah, I think we all are born desiring um, things that are wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, we're all born greedy. We're all born selfish. If we all did what feels right to us all the time, um, that would be that would make for a horrible world and horrible relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, So that cannot be the marker that we use to judge whether something is right or wrong, if it (laughs) feels right to us or feels wrong to us. Mm. The Bible's teaching on original sin, actually, to me, that's one of the main implications and applications here, is that we cannot use that as our yardstick. What we were born feeling is right or wrong, but we have to go by what God has revealed as is right or uh, wrong. So, next question: Then, is sin really that bad? Is it something we can overcome? Can't people just choose to do
1: good? Um. Well, <laughs> if all of our of all of our thinking and our feelings and, and everything are tainted um, by our sinful inclinations. Even if our thoughts are tainted, we are—we don't will not even know what the right thing is to choose. That's You and I had an interesting email exchange this week yeah.
0: about total depravity, mm. and you were saying you prefer a slightly different term.
1: I prefer the word uh, pervasive uh, depravity. Mm-hmm. Um, total depravity suggests that we are totally, absolutely evil. Through and through, and uh, you know that's absolute depravity is actually a theological term that we use to describe the devil and his cohorts. But what we're trying to say is that every part of our being, our thinking, our feeling, our our actions, our will, is infected by sin. Uh, so it's pervasive, rather than uh, a total write-off. Yeah, yeah, and that, like you said earlier, affects our
0: ability. To think correctly, mm-hmm. to have correct motivations, to even seek after God. And so that leads to our next question then. If, if what we've been saying is true, then what are the implications for the good news? And everything we're going to say from this point forward in our series, what are the implications of
1: total depravity? Well, it means, well, as the scriptures say, that we are dead in our sins, so that doesn't give us much hope, because <laughs> mm-hmm. we can't do um, we anything. Are, we are sinful and in every aspect of our being, so it means that somebody, something needs to come from the outside and do it all for us. Yeah. Dead mm-hmm. people need more than self-help. Self-help is the primary
0: approach to everything in our world today. A yeah. uh, little advice, uh, you know, some, some tweaks to make to your life to make it better, and you'll be all right. And if we really get the doctrine of total depravity, uh, we know that's not going to cut it. The, the greatest problem that humanity faces needs a radical, um, totally different kind of solution, a solution that brings us to life and we're going to begin talking about that more and more as this series proceeds. Thank you for filling in today on the podcast today, Pastor Philip. Well, thank you for inviting me, Bill. This has been fun. Yeah, it is fun. <laughs> and on the spot. <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll we'll have you on again. <laughs> All right. And thanks everybody for listening. Uh, we'll see you again next week.